Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome back to Around the Coin. I interviewed Corey Ashton Walters today. He is the founder and CEO of Here. Website is here.com, H-E-R-E. Here is a online marketplace that allows anyone to invest in vacation rentals online and earn passive income. So specifically, they take advantage of the regulation Reg A+, and that allows people to invest in fractional ownership. And we talk about what the details are of Reg A+, and why it's such a big deal. We talked about the future of housing and real estate, the future of liquidity mechanisms, ways of investing in real estate, and why it is certainly the future. So I learned a lot from Corey about real estate, homelessness, the trends in building, building costs, Uh, He's certainly very knowledgeable, having now worked on his second startup in uh, travel and real estate, with the first being Homeworthy. So I hope you enjoyed this conversation as much as I did. It was a very honest and vulnerable conversation about the challenges of building a startup, as well as the hugely valuable lessons in learning from other people who have done it before you. So here here I bring you Corey Ashton Walters. All right, my man, Corey Ashton Walters. I'm excited to to dive in with you more, man. Um, let's just kick it off with what the impetus was for starting here, here.co. Uh, I'd love to learn kind of where you were in maybe your last startup and then what you saw in the market or however you saw the opportunities to start here. Yeah, great to meet Mike. Thanks for having me on. Um, wow, what led us... What led us here, so to speak? So, um, so this wasn't my first startup. So before here, I co-founded a company back in 2017 called Homeworthy. Um, I was living in New York City at the time. I had a co-founder, and we had a hunch. So we felt like people living in small town America were underserved in the tools and technology at their disposal to sell a house. So this is still true to this day. You know, you look at a random real estate listing in, in rural America, and like looks like the average agent takes a photo of like a crappy cell phone or an old digital camera. They slap a yard sign in the yard, they list it for sale, and you know, give me six percent commission, please. That's generally the the rundown. Um, so we thought, well, what if we brought big city tools and technology like you know drone aerials, three D scans, video walkthroughs, you know, things you'd see in you know a, a real estate listing and you know, New York or Los Angeles or Miami to small town America. Could we sell their homes faster and for more money than their neighbors? Um, so we launched with that thesis um, back in uh, in 2019 in the Pacific Northwest. We chose uh, Vancouver, Washington and Battleground, Washington as our first two markets. 
And over the course of uh, about 10 months, we grew to about 900 small towns and cities across the entire Pacific Northwest. So if you lived anywhere in the state of Washington or Oregon, we could help you sell you know, a home and for the fraction of a cost of a traditional agent. You know, Fast forward uh, a little over a year, and we hit March 2020. Like most people, the you know, world gets turned upside down. My world gets turned upside down. Everybody's world gets turned upside down. But in Homeworthy's case, it was kind of our moment. You know, we built a fully remote way to sell a house uh, during a time that, frankly, nobody wanted to meet anybody in person. Um, and we found a really op- interesting opportunity there. Of you know, uh, you know, Seattle was basically patient zero for COVID. And we were like two hours from Seattle. Um, so we got all this great press coverage and, you know, Homeworthy had its moment and we had this massive growth curve, about 300% month over month. The challenge with great growth came, you know, great burn. Um, so I think we were going into that month, we had about 100 days of runway and coming out of that month, um, we were projecting to have less than 30. So we had to move pretty quickly. And the third week of, of March, we tried to raise money from our existing investors to keep throwing coals in the fire. It's like we're growing. This is the best time for this company at this point. You know, we've been growing, and this is really the best time um, from a from a traction standpoint. The challenge was it was like the third week of March. The stock market was upside down, and most of our investors were living in states with threats of shutdowns, which had never happened before. So everybody was like, "No checks. Like, make it to the summer. There's no checks coming across the bow." And um, you know, after about a week of not being able to clear market with our existing investors and every other investor we talked to basically ghosting us, um, I make the tough decision to lay off our entire team of 12 at the time and, um, you know, wind down the company um, to a slow burn as possible. So the idea was like, well, if we lay everybody off and try and make it to the summer, maybe we can, you know, everybody thought COVID was going to be over by the summer. Like maybe we can kick the kickstart the company back off and we could, up, up if we could just survive. And, um, you know, we make it to June. I moved my family down to to Florida, which is where I am now, and we just try to survive. And uh, you know, around June, we try to raise a bit more money um, from our existing investors, kick the lights back on, try and restart things. Um, and we just couldn't clear market. You know, my team was unemployed; they're happily unemployed. We didn't have any traction. We just didn't have the magic that we had when yeah. we were growing, and um, just couldn't find product market fit with investors. So, you uh, know, how are you? Uh, how are you feeling at that point? Oh, 10 out of 10 depressed. Yeah. Um, actually, I would say probably 8 out of 10 depressed. 10 would be suicidal. I'd say 8 out of 10. At the time, I was also going through divorce. So it was, you know, six months before, company's doing great, happily married, living in the place that I want to live. Everything's going great. To fast forward six months forward, going through the divorce, company's done, marriage is done. You're living in you know, Florida, which is where you grew up. It was a huge ego trip, for sure. So about you know, eight out of 10 on depression, very tough. Hmm. How, what did you, how did you get through that? Anything that you grasped onto? You know, what's interesting is that at, after the first couple of conversations we had with our existing investors, um, I was expecting FUs, people yelling, threats of lawsuits, you name it. And um, the first investor I called um, said, well, what's next? What's the next project? It's very interesting. Because I've never started a company like that before where you're allowed to fail and your investors are like, okay, well, let's do something else. And um, it really gave me a bunch of confidence when at a time where I had none. I was like sleeping on the couch, you know, everybody's been there, like as depressed as it gets. Um, so I just picked up books, articles, whatever I could read, just like looking for answers, looking for inspiration, looking for what to build next. 
And um, around this point, I think Airbnb was getting ready to go public. Um, and there was a really interesting research report from a company called uh, Grandview Research. Um, and about halfway through the report, there's this metric that I'll remember for the rest of my life because it sent me down a rabbit hole that I'm still going down, which is by uh, 2025, 75% of all travel and leisure spend in North America is going to be made by millennials or younger. Um, and that was a big light bulb moment and also um, you know, determination. Basically means over the next half decade, next five years, the majority of spend on flights, hotels, travel-related activities, accommodations, et cetera, is going to be driven by millennials and younger generations. Um, and uh, Why was that so shocking to you? Well, I didn't realize it was coming that fast. You know, Millennials are now getting pretty old. I mean, some of us are almost 40, so it's like it, it's, it, I didn't realize it was coming that fast. Um, and... Uh, I knew that that meant there was a wave. So like, there's a wave here. There's like a wave buried in here somewhere. Um, and I, you know, went down the rabbit hole, popped out the other side and was like, okay, there's gonna be a pretty big, you know, supply demand imbalance of like the, the demand for alternative accommodations. You know, there's, there's no secret that when millennials travel, they prefer, you know, uh, glamping, you know, short-term vacation rentals, you know, cabins, yurts, et cetera when they travel and the current supply that exists, you know, there's a pretty big imbalance there. You know, I don't know the last time you stayed in Airbnb, but it's pretty unpredictable when you open the door, what you're going to walk into. Um, is there going to be dirty plates in the sink? Is somebody still going to be living in, in the, in the property? Um, are the sheets going to be dirty? Um, so, you know, largely it's a fragmented industry of like independent owner operators or independently owned with a third party manager. Um, so we thought, okay, there's probably a there's probably a, an opportunity here or a wave that we could ride, and I think the original idea for for here was we were going to build roof stock for vacation rentals. What is roof stock? No. So what roof stock does is they acquire single family homes, they fix them up, they fill them with a tenant, they sell them to one end investor, and then they manage it for that investor. So the idea is like a turnkey real estate investment. Um, where they, you know, find the property, fix it up, fill it with a tenant, manage it for you, and then you just collect a check. So we thought we could build a similar portfolio of properties, consolidate, you know, in, in that in that space of, of short-term vacation rentals with this roofstock style model. Mm. Um, but that didn't work. So after about two weeks, we were like, there's no way to get loans on these things. I mean, I got doors slammed on me one by one. It's 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 almost easier to get loan. I would say it is easier to get loans on farmland than it is vacation rentals. Um, the main reason, the, yeah. well, the main, the main reason why is most loan programs that cater, excuse me, <coughs> most uh, loan programs that uh, apply for uh, short-term vacation rentals are, are repackaged long-term loans. So they want to underwrite the property like a, single family property that has a, t- a single pr- tenant in place for X amount of months or X amount of years. So when you're filling out the application, they go, well, how long has the tenant been there? The answer is zero or days. And they, they underwrite it like a, like a, a long-term uh, rental. So the challenge is there because most of these vacation rentals don't actually cash flow as a long-term rental, which then means you don't pass underwriting, which then means you don't actually get the loan. And this is, um, you're, you're speaking as the person who would purchase the property and then use it out to Airbnb? 
Yes. Yeah. And and you got to understand with this idea or this original idea of like this rootstock model was, okay, we have to sell it to somebody that has to apply for this loan. So if we can't get a loan and we're doing it professionally, what's it going to be like for, you know, Jane, the product manager at Google, um, or Joe, the lawyer, to get a loan? The answer is they're going to have to buy it in cash. And most of these homes are four hundred, five hundred, six hundred thousand dollars. And who has that much laying around in cash? So we thought this is too small of a market. It's going to be basically super wealthy people that you're going to be able to sell these to because there aren't going to be any mortgages available for them. Um, so now, uh, why why wouldn't the? I would imagine if I'm a bank and I'm issuing mortgages out there, I would just adapt the model. You know, there's a, an, an evolution in the market. People are buying properties and then renting them for shorter time periods. It doesn't seem that it doesn't even seem that innovative. It's just, okay, instead of like three months or longer or years or longer, it's now days or weeks. Yeah. Is there some structural blocker? Yeah. I mean, if you're a bank, you gotta, you gotta think it's a pretty risky asset class, you know, um, depending on where you live. Um, I think you live in Portland, you know, vacation rentals are highly regulated and regulation comes and goes on a daily basis. So let's say you write a mortgage for a home. That's a vacation rental. And then six months later, it's banned. Mm. Well, now you've got a mortgage that doesn't cash flow. They're losing money every month. You have a high default rate. So it's very hard for them to underwrite. Um, and then also it's a very new industry, you know. Um, and what I mean by new industry is that, you know, growing up, my you know family had timeshares. It was a thing. Vacation rentals were still a thing back then. But the whole idea of an Airbnb and that becoming its own segment is very new. And again, this company just went public over a little over a year ago. So I will say like the mortgage industry is catching up and they're trying to apply old methods to a new age way of, 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 of optimizing real estate through, uh, you know, a vacation, short-term vacation rental. Um, so, you know, hit that wall, didn't give up, but after a couple weeks of toiling, I got hit with an ad for a company called Masterworks. Are you familiar with Masterworks? No. They do fractional ownership of artwork. So the idea is that like you could own 1% of a Basquiat or a Banksy or, you know, some really awesome artwork that's worth a lot of money that appreciates well over, you know, a decent time horizon that's somewhat, somewhat stabilized, um, that was normally reserved for super high net worth people, um, to own all of it. Generally, if you want to buy artwork, specifically high end artwork or collectible, Mm -hmm. you've got to buy all of it. And what's interesting is Masterworks uses this regulatory instrument called the Reg A+. And the Reg A Plus is this SEC framework that allows you to fractionalize anything of value. It could be a piece of artwork. It could be this coffee cup. If it were rare, it could be anything. Um, and um, that was a big, uh, I'd say, the second light bulb moment in here's history because I realized I could actually apply a fractional approach through a Reg A Plus instrument that like a company like Masterworks uses to an asset class that has a ton, a ton of barriers to entry. One of them being the financial, you know, financial structure of, you know, incredibly hard to get loans, very expensive, very hard to manage, et cetera. And then instead of having to sell it to one investor, we could then have, you know, hundreds of investors that own, you know, shares and take part in those financial benefits of, of being a partner on a property that produces cash flow. In the last 10 years, over $100 billion worth of crypto has been lost or stolen specifically because of poor key management scams and hackers. Forget not your keys, not your crypto. Software and hardware wallets have both the same vulnerability, that a single private key can be lost, hacked, or simply just misplaced. 
My new sponsor, the Zengo Crypto Wallet, is a total game changer, bringing wallet security to a whole new level. You have to check out Zengo, an on-chain crypto wallet with no private key vulnerability, leveraging advanced cryptography called MPC, which has just until now only been available to multi-billion dollar institutions. So Zengo, most secure Web3 wallet, is the best place to keep your crypto, NFTs, and assets secured. It's also fully recoverable using their biometric recovery system, and it's also just beautiful. Get started at Zengo.com and use code ATC to get $20 back on your first purchase of $200 or more. That's Zengo.com, code ATC for $20 back on your purchase of $200 or more. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary, void, or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. That's exciting. And that that's a, the Reggae Plus is applicable to anything. I mean, is there a limitation on anything that somebody can own? I'd imagine there's carve outs for real estate, given that it's like when you buy a house, you don't pay sales tax just because of the carve sure. out, right? So is there, was there, are, are there in place now any, either good or bad laws specifically for real estate? You know, it's an interesting question. I'm not aware of any specific carve-outs for Reg A Plus um, on like prohibited asset classes. Mm-hmm. Maybe there's stuff around gambling or, you know, general vices. But, um, you know, there's a company called Otis that does fractional ownership of collectibles and rare items. Um, there's Rally Road, which does collectible cars, fraction ownership there. So it's really a wide berth of of different assets, and I would say within the last year, real estate's really come online. Um, and I, and and crowdfunding in real estate isn't a new thing. You know, it's been around for for probably the last ten years. The benefit of the Reggae Plus, though, is 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 that most crowdfunding platforms like Fundrise, et cetera, you're kind of like funding like a debt vehicle as an investor. You're not really an investor on the property. You're kind of funding this weird instrument. Um, the way the SEC sees it is that you're you're basically the owner of an you're you're the owner of an LLC. So the property does one thing: it buys an LLC, or it, it the LLC buys a property, and then you have X amount of partners on that LLC. Just like if you and me this weekend went out in Portland, partnered on a property, you own fifty percent, and I own fifty percent, you'd be entitled to fifty percent of you know the appreciation, uh, the cash flow the property generates, the depreciation and tax right. benefits, things of that nature. But the difference is, well, instead of two of us owning partnership with that LLC, we use the Reg A Plus to break it up into, you know, hundreds of investors, right. five, six, seven hundred investors that have the same ownership rights. But instead of needing to have fifty percent of the cash, 
you could have 1% or less than 1% of the cash to still have ownership stake and ownership rights of that property. Do so you, I would we'll say the, the Reggae Plus powers that. Yes, sorry. Yeah. Well, I'm wondering, what was the, do you know what the blocker was previously? So I'd imagine when you start an LLC, you can have two members, three members, four members. Was there Certainly. a cap on the, like you, it it almost seems like that would have been possible before. Was there something in place that prevented a uh, fairly infinite number of investors on a LLC? I think the big, the big thing that's prohibitive there is solicitation of securities. You know, um, there's nothing stopping. Again, it's like if you and me had 40 friends and none of us were accredited investors, nothing stopping us from 40 of us being partners on a property. Um, the big unlock is the solicitation of securities to unaccredited investors that allows mass fractionalization. Um, and that's somewhat new. I'd say within the last, you know, five or six years, the Reggae Plus has really come online. It's been one of the, you know, the big power uh, powerhouses in fractionalization for assets. Yeah, hence the crowdfunding platforms that have been, you know, right. WeFunder and what, maybe AngelList. Uh, there's a bunch that have popped up. Right, yeah, yeah, certainly. Hmm. Interesting. Okay. So then you say, let's do this for rental properties. You see the need in the market, the inability for mortgage companies, lenders to adapt. And then Reggae Plus allows you to advertise uh, investment opportunities. And you say, why not build a platform where people can invest in uh, short-term rentals? And then you walk me through how, what that looks like in practice. And if I described it correctly. Yeah, I would say that's the thought process we went through. Um, well, I said the first thought process was, it was like, okay, Masterworks does this. So who are they working with to make this legal? So we scrolled to the bottom of their page and read that the securities were being you know, issued by a broker dealer named Downmore Group. And I picked up the phone and acted like a big CEO from my kitchen table and said, hey, we're looking to fractionalize vacation rentals. Who do I work with and what's the dream team? And that, that was, I guess, the first step. Um, but yeah, I, I would say, you know, the, the, the structure is pretty simple. We identify properties that we'd like to acquire generally here looks at properties and destination markets. What that means are like places that you vacation at. Um, it could be, uh, Joshua tree. It could be the Poconos. It could be the Smoky mountains, Rocky mountains, the great lakes, et cetera, Florida beaches, um, et cetera. Um, and, um, that's on the top level. First, we're looking at those types of markets. Um, once we identify properties in those markets that we'd like to acquire, um, we then put them on a contract. We do some diligence on the properties. Um, you know, we make sure that um, it passes our underwriting. Those are things like um, checking boxes on, you know, what does the the booking revenue look like? What does the average daily rate for the property look like? Um, what does the occupancy rate look like? What does the growth Look like also for those metrics, those individual metrics on the on the on the property level and on the market level, um, and then general real estate stuff like making sure the inspection comes back okay. Mm-hmm. Um, and know, these are sure. good. These are existing properties where there's already an Airbnb running, and somebody wants to they want to sell that business. Or is there also a case where people have an idea and they want to build something brand new, and there's a, a loan taken out there? Currently, we identify vacation homes. Um, and we turn them into vacation rentals. So the idea is like a you know a vacation home that's a second home in you know Big Bear, California, as an example. Um, the idea is then we're turning it into a vacation rental. It takes very little work once it's actually a vacation home because we're buying a furnished property. Um, but there's things you're going to do. You're going to make sure there's extra linens, towels, mm-hmm. um, coffee, um, you know, soaps, etc. Um, but that's how we look at, um, you know, uh, uh, the property thems- themselves. You know, we do have on the horizon the idea of acquiring 
um, existing vacation rentals. It's a bit more challenging from an underwriting standpoint. We have to get audited financials. So that becomes somewhat arduous. You know, if somebody that lists their home for sale doesn't exactly sign up for, you know, hey, we need your bank statements for the last year and your driver's license. You know, it's, it's, it's kind of hard to convince an, a seller on the open market for that. So it's much easier to acquire a vacation home and turning it into a vacation rental because it streamlines the process mm. um, significantly. And we're able to move pretty quickly um, still with that acquisition strategy. And most people that have uh, second homes that are vacation homes, is it typically just sitting there vacant for the most part? And they're just trying to, you know, they don't have the energy or desire to, or means to put it into Airbnb. And they're saying, why not do this? Yeah, I would say you know, it's just vacant six to nine months out of the year. Mm-hmm. So, you know, 60 to 80% of the time the property sits vacant. Um, people sell for all types of reasons, you know, um, financial reasons, um, wanting to, you know, buy another home or, you know, needing to get cash out of an existing property. Um, you know, I would say the, the majority of them, it's like, it, it's just like if you ever bought a house and sold a house, you know, you enter at one price and sometimes you leave at another, or you get sick of the house, you get sick of the location. Um, but um, yeah, it really varies um, uh, pretty significantly. But with second homes, it's pretty rare if they list it um, on Airbnb um, when they're not at the property. Um Generally, they have private items in the property, you know, Um, so it's tough. You get pictures of your kids, things like that. Yeah, yeah. It's tough to list it, you know, for the six months out of the year, you're not there. And um, yeah, most of these just sit vacant. Got it. Got it. Okay. So then your, 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 I imagine somehow ads or SEO or something, people are finding out about here. They have a second home. They come in. You go through this auditing process or underwriting process. Do you give them a quote at like here would be the, or, or do you, is the first thing you do is put it up into the open market and say, Hey, this is the investment opportunity guys come and put it in and throw up the figures and the, the deal. Like how, how does it tactically work? Yeah. So, um, the sellers don't know who we are when we buy the property Main reason why is there's a good chance we start to get taken advantage of is like here with the big money bags coming in to buy properties. So we generally buy the properties on the open market, um, represented by an agent in the local market. So to the sellers, we're just a buyer. Mm-hmm. Um, they don't know that here is buying the property. Um, so we look for properties on the open market. We do receive some off market deals um, in 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 our uh, deal sources, but. Um, mostly they're properties that are currently listed for sale. And then we have an agent that represents us and our investors um, to acquire uh, acquire the property. Gotcha, gotcha. And then you buy it. And then is there a team locally? So you, you launch geographically where people are managing the property effectively as Airbnb or short-term rental managers? Yeah, it's a great question. So so we partner with local third-party operators, um, generally best and the brightest in each market that we select. Um, you know, if Big Bear is a market, we're working with you know the best and the brightest and big and Big Bear for you know property inspectors, landscapers, um, you know uh, property managers, uh, cleaners, you name it, electricians, etc. So we build a, an individual network around us um, of existing operators in that market. I always thought there there's a whole business in and of itself in in aggregating that network of oh, yeah. local uh, you know short term rental property managers like if you know it, yeah right? in a way like home light for property managers yeah like yeah you know there's thumbtack fragmented and, yeah it's it's pretty fragmented um, so do you is is a key part of it to find a manager in that area where they're just gonna they'll figure it out they'll find the the 
the you know maid to come clean, the person to come fix pipes and things, or are, are you guys finding every contractor that comes in? Yeah, so we act as the asset manager. So our job is to um, identify and manage the manager. So you know our job is to you know find the local contacts, work with them, manage them. If one isn't working, you know we we swap them out or work with a different partner um, on the local level. But we aren't actually setting up boots on the ground operations in each of these markets. We think it allows us to move very quickly. Mm-hmm. One of the things we learned pretty early on is the benefit of being able to launch a lot of properties in a lot of different markets. The challenge is if you go down, you know, from thirty thousand feet down to five feet, it becomes very challenging to scale quickly into new markets because you've got to set up an office, you've got to hire locally. So we found the best direct, the best, the best route was actually to to go down a direct partnership route, so that you have local stakeholders. They've been living there for years. You're not displacing jobs. You're enriching local, you know, the local economy. Um, and generally, these are the people that understand these pro- these properties and these areas better than anybody. You know, or the people that already work there versus trying to come in and install yeah. new management and install, yeah. you know, new service providers. Um, so that's been our strategy. Um, and uh, that's what we're planning on doing for the next, you know, several markets. Yeah. Where is it now in terms of, of, of progress? However, you measure that either in revenue or number of houses traded? Yeah. Great question. So, so we launched um, officially uh, a little over a week ago, which has been which has been great. We got SEC approval two weeks ago, and it took us a year to get. Um, and uh, we had to have basically an, an, the way that they see it, or I should say, the SEC sees it, it's like an IPO, mm-hmm. and you have to take a property public. Is the idea? So we brought our first property public. It's in Largo, Florida, which is very close to, to Clearwater. Um, and then once we get that initial, basically initial public offering approved, we're then able to launch new properties as amendments to our initial offering. Um, so we're able to move much faster. A new property takes a couple of days to, to bring online. Um, so our first offering went live. Um, it filled um, pretty quickly in about a week. Excuse me. And um, what was the value? Uh, over the next, like, um, it was about $400,000, um, a little less than $400,000. Um, and over the next, um, you know, eight to 10 weeks, we're launching a new property in a new market, you know, every week or every other week. So we've got a few properties coming online. I'm sure by the time this podcast comes out, um, we've got a property in, in Big Bear and Joshua Tree, um, in, in Gatlinburg, which is the big Smoky Mountain destination, um, as well as other markets, the Poconos, et cetera. So, you know, over the next 20 weeks, we're planning on launching 20 different properties in 20 different markets, which is a big ambitious goal. But uh, I think we're poised to accomplish it. It's awesome. It's awesome. Yeah, to me, it, it seems like uh, we 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 as an individual people who are purchasing homes in the U.S. place enormous amount of our our, our savings and our future potential savings through a mortgage and loans on one property. And it seems like to me that. If you could, if you could, you know, I would never put all of my investment in the stock market in one company. And I think that typically is discouraged against like from a serious quantitative traders. And uh, it's like, well, does it make sense to allow other people to buy in? Right. Cause I don't really, I, you know, if you buy a house, you buy a house to live in it. You don't really buy a house as an investment vehicle. Like I want a place to sleep and, and live, but, <laughs> and if the house goes up in value or down in value, you're riding that sure. wave pretty hard. 
And you're not actually yeah, alone too. Yeah, it's not an investment decision like I'm selling this house today to make money because I I view it as a good time to sell. It's like no, I have a job in another city, or I got a divorce, or I'm retiring, or whatever the right. reason is. And so people are, I, I feel like, very much just carried along in the wind without, and it, it leaves open the gap of where people can intelligently invest in real estate markets. And I yeah, wonder if 100%. you think about like, is could a beyond real estate, you know, picture roll the clock a few years in the future, can people almost take uh, reverse mortgages out in their home and say, I own a $500,000 home, I have a $400,000 mortgage, can I take half of that, put it up on the open market, I get cash in the bank, people get to own the house because they view, you know, I live in Portland, like Portland is a place that they view the real estate market to grow or flip side. Could you sell it? Could you sell part of the house or you know buy other houses? And instead of owning like 400,000 in one house, I'm owning like 50 houses in a smaller percentage. Right. Do, you, do you think we're going that direction? I think, I think we're heading into a democratization of equity. So I think we're in, in a, in a, in a fractionalization of equity. I think, you know, you have debt equity. I don't know if you own your house currently, but you have equity that sits there. Now you can do things like take out home equity line of credits and all these like funky things that you own mortgages on, reverse mortgages. You know, our grandparents got fooled by those. Um, but I think the future is more or less like I've got $100,000 in equity that's sitting dead and there's going to be a marketplace or multiple marketplace that exists for things that have value, meaning equity that currently sits dead that can be traded based on the inherent value. So I think it's going to happen across multiple asset classes. I think it's going to happen, you know, in uh, collectible cars. I think could, you could see another thing with that, housing, not just single family homes, but also commercial and farmland, industrial, vacation rentals, et cetera. Um, I think there's a pretty wide berth of opportunity there. I think if you're familiar with pipe. Yeah. Yeah. Pipe.com. Yeah. They're doing that with like reoccurring revenue right. for businesses and I think we're heading close quickly to a world where like residential real estate's gonna have some like a pipe for residential real estate or a pipe for commercial real estate. I think we're headed for that. I think really what we're talking about like liquidity engines in a way. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's gonna be fragmented. I think the economy's too big to have like a winner take all for each of these indiv- for like all of these asset classes. But um we largely see here in the future as, as you know a power for that in, in vacation rental, you know, equity or providing liquidity there. Um, the interesting thing about the reg A is you could technically sell, we're not building this today, but it's an interesting idea is that like, let's say you owned a hundred percent of your, you know, uh, you know, uh, cabin in the smoky mountains. Um, and you wanted to sell 95% of your equity and retain 5% ownership because you've got some, you know, family air or some family tied to the property. You could exit, you know, you'd be able to exit the property to 95% of other investors that are investing anywhere from, you know, $100 up to, you know, thousands of dollars um, and still maintain ownership stake, mm. but release some of the obligation of the ride that we talked about, where it's like you've got the responsibility of management, managing the property. You also like with 100% of the equity comes 100% of the upside or downside, you know? So I, you know, you, you brought up an interesting point on like, we get investors all the time. I get emails all the time of like, you know, why don't I just do this myself? Like, why don't I just buy one of these myself? I've got $100,000 I could put down. I can get a mortgage. I can do it. And it's an interesting question. It's an interesting idea because you could. And you could probably earn more money if you did it yourself because you're not using a manager. Here's not getting a cut. You're doing it yourself. Absolutely. But the challenge is, is very similar to what you're talking about, is like 
you have 100% of the mortgage, 100% of the duties, responsibility, et cetera, and you've got $100,000 if you're cash into that property, into that one property at that one address in that one location. What's interesting is if you took that $100,000 and you spread it across 1,000 properties of $100 investments, you're incredible, just like what you're talking about with stocks, like incredibly diversified. You have no physical risk of like having to manage the property. Um and you get exposed to markets that you wouldn't have been able to be mm-hmm. exposed to before. And I think you could apply that same template to a lot of other asset classes. I don't think here is unique to that. I think that's something, it's a trend that's going to continue of like, you know, I could put all my stuff in this, but why would I do fractional? And I right. think the real reason is fractional allows, you know, extreme diversification and without giving up the ownership stake and ownership rights that you get with direct ownership. Yeah, I, I totally agree. I mean, it seems like common sense when you say it. You know, you, yeah. if you're, it, it's like the idea of just you're almost arguing for putting all your eggs in one basket versus diversification. And I just suppose previously there just wasn't the mechanics or the you called it like the liquidity mechanisms available, right? Sure. How could I put one thousand dollars into a any kind of property in, you know, like Tahoe, if I wanted to, like you just, where do you go? How do you do it? It's impossible. Um, where, yeah, it's tough. where are we now? Like if someone's interested in investing a hundred thousand into real estate, uh, here is, you know, you guys have one property. Are, are you guys at the bleeding edge? Are there other segments of real estate that are open today for fractional ownership? Yeah, I mean, there's a couple of the platforms that exist today. I think, you know, Fractional comes to mind. Um, I think it's Fractional app is the platform. Um, and they allow you to own like a quarter of, you know, uh, you know, a, a quarter of a property, like 25% ownership stake or, you know, 50%. So it allows like a group of friends to come together to invest. So we think that's really exciting. I'm actually really excited about that product. Um, a friend of mine um, uh, runs a company called Dorvest. Which is um, similar towards fractional, um, with a bit more where you own 100% of it, but they handle the logistics, they handle you know property management, making sure that it's filled with a tenant, um, things of that nature. Um, there's a great company called Acre Trader, which is kind of like here for farmland. Mm-hmm. Um, so we're really seeing it explode. Um, uh, I'm friends with a couple other founders. I mean, this is how it goes when you start these companies, you become friends with all the other founders doing the same kind of like weird bleeding edge stuff. Um, I have a friend of mine, Nick, that does fractional ownership of wine, mm. like rare wine that's worth a bunch of money. So it's like this really cool, like this rare screaming eagle, you know, vintage worth $5,000 a bottle. And in three years, it's going to be worth $10,000 $10, a bottle. And they can map out. It's like, if I put $100 into this collection, it's actually pretty, it's like uncorrelated to the stock market. It's been going up historically. So it makes a lot of sense. So I really think fractional is the future across all asset classes. Um, mm. And I've got a million examples of other platforms that do the same type of um, uh, approach to a very hard, arduous platform or our asset class. Uh, fine wine is a great example. It's like, where do, where do we buy? Where do you buy rare wine? I don't even know where to go. I don't know where to look. I don't know where to tell if it's worth any money or if it's fake or real. Same goes for artwork. How do I know if it's real? How do I store it? I mean, if I bought a million dollar piece of artwork, I can't store it in my living room at my house. You know, I've got to store it in like either somewhere that's got a bunch of security or somewhere with like uh, insurance for if there's a flood. Um, So these like really high barrier to entry asset classes, I think are probably going to be the first to fall of like fractionalization really powering these industries. Mm. 
Yeah, I think there's a the trap there that you're kind of surrounding or almost like a a blind spot that I think is important we don't walk into which is that we invest and this is where I think NFTs largely mm-hmm. are today in many ways sure. which is that I'm investing in just call it an asset it could be digital or physical that doesn't have that's not delivering any value to any human being today or for the free, foreseeable future and this is sure. the difference Trap between value. you know a piece of art hanging in my living room versus a piece of art locked in a basement somewhere uh, stored purely for the growth and value of it and, and and I think that the, the same thing with the wine bottle, I can see like there's wine, you can own a, a, a wine bottle and that wine bottle exists. And some, some and the reason why it's valuable is because we own it and we say one day we're going to sell it to somebody who's going to pay a lot of money for it and they're going to drink it and they're going to cherish that experience. But it's the, it's the human experience. It's that like emotional experience of, wow, this is a great wine that I'm drinking. And if you don't imagine selling, uh, you know, a, a beautiful, like a $50,000 wine bottle, but there's no wine inside, you know, we're trading this bottle. It's worth 50,000 and 60,000. And then, and then at the end of the day, it's like, it's, it's just, this is the, the same, we're circling back. It's like, uh, this is, this is the negative, um, reputation that pyramid schemes or Ponzi schemes generate. They're, you're selling something that just keeps on needing to be sold and doesn't have any value that is ultimately delivered. Unlike houses, real estate, where I'm living in a house, I'm getting value from the house today. Sure. Uh, therefore, there's I, a me- there's right. a scale to measure it on on like a monthly basis. It's like right. is it performing? Yeah. You know. Yeah. There's, there's something going on. There's cash coming in and out of the property. Right. There's transactional value. Yeah. It makes a lot of sense. Otherwise, we miscalibrate uh, what what value what future value looks like. You know, like if I buy a JPEG on an NFT. Mm-hmm. I'm assuming that somebody is going to highly value, they're going to look at that thing and they're going to say, oh, that's a yeah. that is great JPEG. I'm getting, you know, it's, oh, you know, yeah. art is like this, right? Because art, it can yeah. really change you. You can look at a piece of art and say, yeah. damn, that, it just carries with it oh, some yeah. deep ideas and it changes me the person. Right, right. 100%. Yeah, I, um, I'm a proud owner of a, a fraction of a bored ape. So like I use Rally Road, which is, you know, a platform that's fractional ownership of different collectibles, things like that. But they just started doing NFTs. And I've been very hesitant to enter to NFTs, but I love the board apes because I think it's such a cool concept. It feels like an evolution of streetwear, it feels very supreme, you know, that type of streetwear brand, obey, hundreds, et cetera. And I watched, you know, those prices tumble over the last, you know, couple months. And I'm like, man, what are we in, what am I investing in? I'm like, I want it to work, but it feels kind of weird. I don't know. I'm I'm largely confused. And I think I should just stick to building my company because I get hung up in like researching NFTs. And I'm like, what am I doing here? I just talk myself into circles. Yeah. Basically. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think that's the, so we have identified where the trap is. There's no end value in human experience. The road there is, right. is people uh, place their investment intelligence or their assessment of value on somebody else. So like it's going up because other sure. people are buying and they're, you know, they're really smart people or they're relying sure. on other smart people. So I, I, you I think know. once you involve celebrities, it starts to get really hairy because then it's like, but they have trust and, you know, I think celebrity show must be barred from like crypto yeah. and NFTs because it's just that's how like grandma gets ripped off because it's like, you know, but George Clooney, his NFT is, is it, he says it's a good one. So I've got to, I'm going to invest my life savings into it. Yeah. You know? That's actually a good sign. As soon as you see, I think of like value generation or at least price increase 
as concentric circles. There's people who discover it, they invent the thing, then they tell their friends, and those people contribute, they build it, they go so on and so forth. And then celebrities are like the, the usually the last ring on anything technological. So the day Paris Hilton tweeted out uh, in 2017, like buy Bitcoin, it's great. There was no one left to tell. That was it. There was no one left <laughs> outside the walls to buy. And so the price crumbled after that point. But you could probably draw some quantitative uh, bot that tracks that. <laughs> a bot on that that just tracks celebrity yeah. sentiment. And like yeah. Once it reaches a certain yeah. like B or C class celebrity, it's like it's time to rip the cord. Exactly. Out yeah. Sell. Yeah. That's so funny. Yeah. That's an analogy, actually. Yeah. But man, it does it does feel like the fractional ownership um it unlocks real value as opposed to things that allow you to trade something that doesn't have in uh it doesn't have inherent real value. I mean, property to me just feels like the one of one of if not the most real thing and valuable thing that a person can own. I mean, it's got to be yeah. by far the biggest thing that people purchase in their life, right? Cars really don't come that close. Um yeah, yeah, and it's becoming more unattainable. Mm-hmm. You know, every day that we live, our house becomes more expensive, and the house next door becomes more expensive. And the re- the reality is that every day it becomes harder. Become- the entry point to become a real estate investor becomes harder and harder and harder. So we think fractional is an answer. It's like this is an answer to at least lower the bar to a bar that's raising every day. And our salaries aren't raising at the same rate as housing. Our savings, you know, whatever the savings rate is or whatever our investments are, it becomes this really hard, like, you know, not trap, but it's like a it's a it's a race that it's really hard to win to start to become a real estate investor. And again, back to that like hundred thousand dollars thing. It's like, yeah, if you want to invest in vacation rentals, you want to buy a property that you don't live in, you know, fifty to hundred thousand dollars down if you can get a loan. Um, but that's just to start the race. And how long does it take the average person to save fifty or hundred thousand dollars? I mean, you're talking years to maybe even a decade to then buy one property. Mm-hmm. And it's like, well, what if they could start the race with a hundred dollars? What if they could start it with five hundred? What if they could tiptoe in? You know, I think that's an important mission. You know, that's you know, we have this big mission statement at the company. And when you start out your mission statement, you don't really know and it changes over time. But like I feel confident about it. It's like very simple. We're on a mission to make vacational investing easy for everyone. And really what we mean by easy for everyone, meaning like attainable for everyone, because the reality is that, you know, take vacation rentals out of it, just becoming an investor in real estate in general, it was a dream when our parents were alive. And now it's becoming a dream that like, I don't know if my, you know, I've got a five-year-old daughter, I don't know if she's going to be able to afford real estate. We're kind of highly heading into this like renter nation, very similar to like European in a way, a lot of renters, people renting at the highest rate they've ever had, you know, in American history. I think we're going to continue down that path. Um, so it's tough because it's almost like fractionalization is an answer to this bar that almost like the goalposts are getting moved further and further back, but we're not running fast enough to catch up with it. Mm. So it does almost feel like fractionalization is an answer to that. Even if it's a temporary one, I think it's a noble mission. Do, do you see the trends happening in, in housing, at least domestically in the U S uh, the number, the, the building, the rates of new construction are just not keeping up nearly at the pace that they should be because of local zoning laws or state regulations or something? Or is there a boom in the number of people trying to purchase housing because of COVID where everyone moved out of cities? I'm sure it's some combination of these, Um, but trying to just understand the macro dynamics that are going on. I think it's the cost to build 
is like the secret thing that's haunting everybody mm. in the industry of creating housing. You know, because if, if affordable housing was easy, we would just build it. And I think the reality is, is that every city gets behind affordable housing. You live in Portland, I'm sure they're behind affordable housing. Miami's behind affordable housing. New York's behind affordable housing. But the cost to build is, is so, so, so expensive. So as the cost to build continues to increase, again, back to the point of, uh, you know, unattainability, it's like it becomes harder and harder to create housing affordably. And it even goes for rentals. Um, I still live in the house that I moved to, you know, full transparency. I live in my grandma's house that I moved to when I lost my company and my wife and everything, lost everything. I'm still here because I started looking at rentals a couple months ago. So I'm like, oh, you know, startups starting to move along. Everything's fine. We're kind of moving out of COVID. I start to feel confident again. And it's crazy because the rentals I was looking at have gone up um, almost 40% on a monthly basis. Um, and Florida is like one of the highest, you know, increasing rental markets here in the United States um, over the last year or two. And I don't know when that's going to end. So it doesn't just apply to home ownership for affordable housing to, to, to buy, affordable housing to live in, but also to rent. Rentals are also becoming super expensive. So until we find a way to build houses, I guess, cheap, more cheaply, you know, is, is 3D, is 3D, you know, printing the, the future is, you know, modular housing, the future. I'm not sure, but it does feel like that's not slowing down either, which is that homes are becoming just more and more expensive to build. Labor's more and more expensive to build. The materials are more and more expensive to build. And you've got the land that also is increasing in value. So it's a really tough problem. Yeah. Yeah, it certainly does seem like if you're going to, if we're saying the cost to build is is increasingly expensive, then it's either the labor costs or the materials costs that's going to chew up a majority of that. And the labor costs you can cut down by building modular homes. And in theory, the material costs you could also cut down by building modular homes, Mm -hmm. probably less so than labor. I'd imagine you could, you know, in theory, like have a machine that just builds houses and then ships them out. And there's a company I saw that was working on this where they had their whole thing was these panels. It was like, paneling housing like almost like uh like connects pieces or legos where the the panels were so yeah. modular that you could configure them like and blockables one i've heard of it might have been that company yeah, yeah. ionic is another one that like mm. actually prints mm. on site which is kind of crazy it looks like a long it looks like it's like layered in like caterpillars like it's really interesting it's called ionic i uh, i don't know how to spell it yeah exactly but you know i i hope that's the answer but until then I don't know if the race slows down. Like, I don't know if this like race to crazy, but I mean, if you look at Europe, it's very similar. You know, it's like to become a homeowner, it's a lifelong mission. It takes a, in, in, in America, it feels like an earned right. And I think we're, we're kind of slowly becoming European in regards to how housing is treated, where it's just incredibly unattainable from an ownership standpoint. Yeah. Yeah. It may be some function of the increasing wealth gap, right? The people who are owning the houses yeah. might own multiple houses and the people who don't are renting out at increasingly large numbers. Um, Certainly. Yeah. yeah. That drives rent too. Yeah. Think about that. It's like, if I can't find a house to buy, I then have to rent when I would have been a buyer. So you've got rental inventory shrinking, which then drives up, you know, supply demand, pretty easy economics, you know, um, which inherently drives that cost up. So I think that's a part. And then they, and if they want to build new inventory, the cost to build rental, you know, uh, an apartment building is, you know, no cheaper than it was, you know, a day or two ago or a month ago, it continues to go up in value or continues to go up in cost. So it's a really complex problem. Nobody's been able to figure it out. Um, 
Nobody. Yeah. I mean, this has been, a, I think this is going to be the problem of the decade, frankly. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino style games to choose from, you too could win life changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to chumbacasino.com and give them a world. That's chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary, void, or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. Do you think people are understanding it increasingly so? Like we're 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 making progress to the confidence of our understanding of what's going on because it seems like the homelessness problem is is getting worse and that is probably much more complicated than people give it credit for. Uh, encompassing things like the mental state of people. It could even be our, our yeah. diets, the nutrition and the food we eat all the way to our health of our bodies and our minds, our ability to be productive in the world, the the relationship that the U S has in productivity versus other countries. Like the idea of people yeah. not being allowed into the country via immigrate via legal justice, just immigration because they're taking jobs sure. Uh, means that you are saying <laughs> when people have that stance, they're effectively saying that mm-hmm. uh, all the purchasing powers in the U S and I think that is completely ignoring the reality that we're living in a, a society where trade is happening sure. across borders. So you have to buy and sell across borders if you want to have mm-hmm. either a big business and big businesses want to have productive workers. So it's not, right. you're not competing locally anymore. Um, and I think people who, th- who think local end up drowning. You know, they drown in the lack 100%. of opportunity that's there. Uh, yeah, there are other yeah, factors. I don't know how we're going to... Yeah. yeah. That you think of? Yeah, I mean, it's like if they can't build affordable housing, can they at least build affordable hospitals that mm. then, you know, provide mental health services to homeless people to at least reduce the, the number of homeless people, you know, or, or find a trend line of like these specific, you know, diagnoses, you know, draw... There's got to be some science on this or data or something that says like these certain circumstances from a mental health standpoint drive somebody to homelessness, identifying them as soon as possible, and then finding a way to treat those types of people as quickly as possible to at least reduce the number of home. If we can't solve the housing problem, maybe we can at least solve the mental health problem, you know, cause I think that's, I think that's a, not an easier problem to solve, but on an economic standpoint, I think it's easier to solve. You know, I think it's, I think it's a cheaper problem to solve, frankly, mm. um, just based on the cost to build housing. So I think like on homelessness, I think that's the obvious, you know, s- solution if if everybody is just like, well, it's just too expensive to build. So like, we're not going to solve this, but it's like, yeah, but you can cut this a million other ways to at least reduce the number of, of people that are homeless, um, which then helps affordable housing, et cetera. Um, y- yeah. Yeah. You know, and you, and you, it's such a hard problem. You, you want, you want, ultimately I have said this before, but we really do want the the most number of people to be the most productive they possibly can for our own self-interested yes. you know, benefit, right? Like I, it, no one is ever, you don't hear, you hear signs, people have signs they make and they yeah. get say, I'm against poverty. It's like, who is ever for poverty? Yeah. 
no, no one is for homelessness, Nobody. right? So, so <laughs> only psychopaths are for poverty. Yeah, you know what I mean. Yeah, like it's, it's really it's against. Poverty. It's not a serious stance. For nobody's for poverty, I should say, not against poverty. And so, yeah, then it's like, well, what what's the underlying like collective uh, trend that's going on? And really, I see it as in large part um, the ability to add value to society. Like productivity is a word we use, but it's if you're adding value to society, you're getting rewarded for that. And through that reward is payment and you can buy things and and integrate yourself and have a place to live, at least rent right. and so on and so forth. And if you get disengaged with that value creation mechanism for almost a cold way of yeah. saying it, it, whether you, uh, you know, commit a crime, go to jail, have a difficult time mm-hmm. getting integrated back into society, uh, you, you lose your job and you're, you're out of the productivity gap. Like it's a really scary feeling. Right. And, um, 100%. Yeah. And I, I think this is the time when there's a great book I'm reading, Ray Dalio's book on uh, the way the world is changing. And it's, it's, I have it on my, I have it on my list. Oh, I actually, ha- you know, it's funny. Hold on. I want to share something yeah. with you really quick. This is, if you're, if you're, if you're watching this or if you're listening to this, I'm picking up the book, I actually have it on my desk. So it's pretty funny. Oh, that's awesome. That's great. Right yeah. Yeah. It's like one of two or three books that are next on my list. Um, how is it? I, I think the, it, it's really, it's strikingly um, representative of what is happening today. When you read it, you, you think this is th- this is not a proclamation or a, a thing that uh, sure. that might happen. It's an observation of the patterns that are happening. Mm-hmm. And so there's, you know, for the first, I'm halfway through it, and I'm I'm reading it as like, oh, this is just a correct observation of the patterns. Once you see a pattern, it's like looking, at, you know, a kid's coloring book. If you don't see it, it's sure. chaos. But once you see it, it's it's crystal clear. And I think that kind of clarity right. can Point. can kick in and engage. Where I, I think that that's the kind of thing that catalyzes, uh, like f- like social fire in a good way, like a renaissance kind of thing, a rebirth is when you see through the chaos of the patterns and you say, oh, we can, we can affect that. We can change it because the book largely predicts this rise and fall of empires, the British, the Dutch, the Roman, now the American. And it's like, I don't know. I just, I can see it where we change that story and we reignite the fire and Agreed. Yeah. I mean, it's not over yet. You know, we're not dead yet. And, you know, <laughs> there's still some opportunity to change. I just think it's like, you almost have to take it one problem at a time. Yeah. It's like if affordable housing is a problem, what small solutions can we work on like today? Like, what can you do to make, you know, to make an, because I think ta- trying to tackle the whole problem is a fool's errand. It's like, there's no way you end up solving, if solving it in general, but it's like, if you can find a way to make building, building materials cheaper or labor cheaper by mm-hmm. automating X, Y, and Z, um, or building off sites or, you know, what's interesting is that housing is one of the biggest pollutants into, you know, the ground. Mm. You know, what's funny is I forget where I saw this and I hope, uh, I hope I get quoted on this, but it was something like 120% of a house is built meaning that like over it was like 20 or 30% of a house actually gets left on the site so extra so it's like bolts this plaster etc so it's incredible pollutant and what's interesting and I think I heard this on a podcast of somebody that was building modular homes is that you have tremendously less pollution when you build off site and install on site so you know I think just from like a yeah, just health of the planet and just in general, you know, like you're not putting like nuts and bolts and extra housing junk, you know, into the ground that isn't being used anyways. Mm. So I, I do think the future is largely modular. I think the faster we get off that, the better. Um, we also build way bigger houses than 
any other country. Is that right? You know, like our houses are so much, dude, our houses are so big. I don't know if you've ever lived in like Pennsylvania or Texas, but it's like, we have like 4,000 square foot homes. Um, and it'd be interesting to see like what the cost for housing is if we were buying, if we're building 1200 or, you know, 1100 square foot homes, yeah. um, you know, what that looks like. So I think we have like a lot of, uh, uh, reality checks around like cost of housing that are coming because the majority of us are being forced to rent because we can't buy. Mm. Um, um, so it becomes challenging. And then what happens with those builders that are building inventory for, you know, who buys them? Mm. If the cost to buy, build a house is $400,000 and they've got to sell it for six yeah. or six fifty, and there isn't a market for that, it becomes a really interesting problem. Do, um, do, do you see um, the kind of uh, growth in this like um, liquidity mechanism that you're, you know, you're, I think of what you're building is like a liquidity mechanism. You're allowing money to flow to areas where it couldn't have flowed previously. I could see things that say people wanted to build a house and they are uh, like crowdfunding the cost of the development of the house. They're saying it's going to cost me 300,000 to build this house. Uh, if you, you know, give me almost like a Kickstarter for houses, but you're owning the house sure. and you get a percentage of uh, the money back over time, or you get uh, a premium on the sale price if they agree to sell it at some point in time. I wonder if the complexity of the investment mechanisms for a real estate could could grow, where things are possible that you wouldn't, you know, people are swimming in very straight lines today. Like you're buying individual properties or there's business yep. properties. Yep. Could that grow? Yeah. I- <laughs> Well, okay, so so I should be careful about how I'd say this, so talk about this, but I'm, I'm friendly with a founder that's building a company in stealth right now, and they basically are doing something similar where it's you've got three or four roommates, and then three or four roommates are then almost like not fractional ownership, kind of like fractional ownership, where like roommate X ha- owns 25%, roommate Y owns 25%, roommate Z, own, you know what I mean, so on and so forth. So that home ownership then becomes possible for roommates. So instead of you and three roommates renting a apartment or renting a house, you then own that property with those roommates. They make it possible. Um, and again, back to the point of like, just re- it reduces that barrier. So I think there's some, re- I think the future is largely that, which is like taking the pressure off of one individual having to come up with 100% of the money and doing, you know, hundred percent of the legwork on getting the loan and being accountable for those different things to where, to be able to sustain this, you know, upward trajectory on home value growth and um, you name it, rental growth. It seems like fractional is the only answer. And, you know, I think largely it's going to come in many different shapes and sizes. I think like the roommate idea is a really interesting one. I think like what you're talking about with like, you know, almost like a Kickstarter type of campaign, um, you know, for, for raising the equity to, to get a down payment for, this one, two, three Apple Street that me and my family want to move into, mm-hmm. or a platform that exists for selling that equity that then investors are then able to recapture in five years. Um, that becomes a bit of a trap, though, I think, talking about traps. I think there is a challenge there because, like, what happens in five years if you don't want to sell right. it? Well, what happens with those investors? You know, you move in with the house, you've got your family, you've got the white picket fence, so to speak. You don't want to live. You're happy with, you don't want to meet, or you don't want to uh, leave the place. You're happy with the school system. You're happy with your kid's room and the neighborhood, your neighbors. What happens with all the investor capital? You know, it becomes a really interesting problem. Um, so I think it's a, it's, 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 a, it's, a, it's a, again, another tough problem to solve. Yeah. <laughs> it's interesting. Yeah. I could see, I could see it solve it. Yeah. You could, I don't know, maybe pay it off. Uh, maybe the owner starts to pay a premium on that or it leaks out of the, mm-hmm. uh, uh, the down payment 
equity line that's sitting there. Sure. Could uh, transition yeah. to like a type of a loan instrument or something like that that's in, added on to the mortgage. Could be something like that that's paid like a, a some type of preferred return um, or something like that. Yeah. It does seem like there's incredible creativity with constraints like this. You know, you can you can draw constraints around the problem and say, well, we're not going to kick anyone out of the house that they live in. Uh, you know, so does that mean if you have a pre, can you have a, a an agreement that says you get five years to live in the house? Like with a rental property, you rent the property for a year or a week or mm-hmm. a weekend and you have to leave. Like right. you stay in an Airbnb, <laughs> you know, longer than they're there. They're going to come knocking, and then eventually cops are going to show. Cops are going to show. Right, right. You've been there for a weekend. You decide not to leave. You know. I think it gets more sticky uh, morally, probably, when we kick people out of houses if they don't have other options. That they move into. Right. I think there's not. Or they moved into. They're they're moved into. Right. The friction's not there with rental properties. Yeah, got the things there. Right. Yeah. With a vacation rental, it's like you just decided, like, yeah, we threw we threw a party over the weekend. We decided we're not leaving. Yeah. You know. It's yeah because very different. Say it's a very different type of uh, door knock. Yeah, an easier than, one. Uh, somebody is hard up on times, and you know, there's a, a different type of process. Yeah, it's like, hey, the club's closed. It's uh, two a.m., guys. You got to go home. <laughs> <laughs> to be yeah. clear, here does not allow any. Pro- we have a very specific no house rules on any property. Uh, or house rules on no no house parties. So like no house parties on any. Why is that? Is that the destruction property. of all property? Uh, well, first of all, Airbnb's basically made it pretty clear no parties. Really? They, they made it, you know, if yeah, if you get identified as a, as somebody that throws parties, you get banned off the platform. For us, it's I mean destruction of property. Yeah. You know, um there's things you can do to accommodate people, like accommodating people that have dogs and things like that, but just the, what's the benefit of of hosting of hosting a property that's having parties? I mean, it's only destruction. Yeah, <laughs> that's the benefit. It's only you know the the chance of no destruction, but the chance of destruction is pretty high. Yeah, um, yeah, that's true. Yeah. yeah, I guess you just need a separate platform for that. The uh, you come and rage your face off at some. Yeah, there's property with no pictures on the wall and. <laughs> Yeah, let's. You're looking for a co-founder. Let's uh, let's uh, spin it up. That let's sounds that sounds like an awful party, business party version of Airbnb. <laughs> I mean, that sounds like it's got there's trouble. A, there's actually th- there's a platform that does that for um, movie sets. So like, if you have, a, I forget the name of it, but it's like if I want to rent out my house because it's beautiful Victorian home, you could rent it out for like commercials and movie sets and things like that. And that's actually a pretty good idea, frankly, if you've got a beautifully designed home um, and they pay really well. I can't think of the name. Yeah. Event up was one actually I know the guy who started that a while ago. I think the liquidity is the problem. There's just not a lot of those and they're, they're kind of, they don't want to pay a transaction fee of, you know, 10% on this deal. Mm -hmm. Like they're way more likely to just do it privately. But once you get these higher value ticket items, even Airbnb, I'm sure they see uh, disintermediation or backdooring happening over, there's gotta be some, you know, trigger event, three months, four months. Yeah. Even us, yeah. we get messages that ask for people to transact off platform. Mm-hmm. So we'll get people that message and say, you know, hey, I'd love to book for three weeks, but you know, can we can we can we do this transaction over Venmo or over text message? The challenge is it opens yourself up to too much liability, yeah. even if the opportunity is to save one hundred and fifty dollars in fees. Um, so it, it, it is a challenge, but yeah, I agree. As you go up market, there's definitely that like leakage of those higher value properties being listed off platform or transacted off platform. Mm. Well, Corey, I'd love to have you back on maybe a, a year or so when you yeah, guys have be cool. made some farther inroads and see how things are going. It's a fascinating market. I love the fact that the, oh, thank you. the legal change opens up opportunities for innovation that weren't previously there. So there's this kind of 
like the dam is broken and now off to the races, we can, we can build things. It's really, those are some of the most exciting business conditions to be in. Yeah. It'd be great to circle up with you in like a year and be able to share some interesting data and some of the, you know, questions I wasn't able to, able to ask today, um, be able to share what that looks like. Yeah. And mention the site here.co great domain name. Did you have that for a while or buy that? No, we, uh, we grabbed it. Yeah. We went after it. Um, very fortunate it was for sale. So we were able to sneak in there and, and, and snag it. But, uh, nice. yeah, I appreciate it. I'm a big domain. I feel like I've become a domain name expert. We acquired our last domain as well from like a third party for my last company. And, um, uh, yeah, it was an interesting negotiation. Do you do any sort of atypical, like, are you contacting people directly at their home or doing anything? <laughs> <laughs> No, we work with an incredible uh, domain broker. Shout out Slade. Mm-hmm. Um, Slade, it's, he's the best name. It's he has the best name. It's his real name for a guy that acquires domains through like back channel. Oh wow! Uh, but uh, no, we we uh, we work with this guy Slade. He's tremendous, That's awesome. Um, and uh, yeah, any other things you want to throw out there? Are you tweeting or writing or um, anything that the company is currently looking for? Or you personally? Yeah, I mean, um, you know, if you haven't thought about investing in vacation rentals, you know, do Google search. You know, look at the economics of investing, whether it's on here or whether it's you know individually you doing it yourself. You know, it's probably one of the best asset classes in real estate, largely you know uncorrelated by macro real estate trends. Um, you know, I feel pretty passionately about that. So anybody that I hear that's investing in vacation rentals, it's, it's it's a super exciting time to be in the space, and it's still pretty small. So it's not like it's it's over, so to speak, or you're late. You know, there's there's still a, a bunch of time to get involved in the industry. Um, so I guess that's the big ask. Um, not going to be the the corny like, hey, go to here and invest today or anything like that. Um, but yeah, I would just check out you know investing in vacation rentals as a as an idea, um, and. Um, yeah, thank you so much for having me today. You know, it's been, it's been a great pleasure. I really enjoyed myself. Yeah, it was a lot of fun, man. Best of luck with everything. Keep crushing it. Thanks again, Mike. Thank you for listening to Around the Coin. If you enjoyed the show today, consider giving us a quick review wherever you listen to podcasts, tweet about it, or text it to a friend. We really appreciate all the support and growing that we can. If you have any guests you'd like us to bring on or feedback for us, don't hesitate to reach out. We would love to hear from you. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner.